Hey everybody, welcome back to the North Carolina Real Estate Show. I am Tiffany Weber, an attorney at Thomas & Weber in Mooresville and soon to be Huntersville, North Carolina. Today we are talking about the July 2023 updates to the North Carolina Standard Offer to Purchase and Contract for Real Estate. I know what you're thinking. Didn't I just do this a year ago? And the answer is yes, yes I did. But today we're here to talk about the July 2023 updates to the North Carolina standard offer to purchase and contract. Let's dive right in. We've got some big changes to the contract this year and let's start from the top. So I actually have the uh, commentary from the North Carolina Association of Realtors and then the marked up contract. So I'll be referring to those two documents that will take effect next month because I'm recording this in June. So in July 2023, this new version will come out and it's the one that agents should begin using. So first up, last year you'll remember that the contract added a checkbox as to whether the property would include a manufactured home. So that checkbox is still there, but there are new checkbox to say whether or not the property will include an offsite or separate septic lot because that is something that is common here. Um, a boat slip, another common thing in the lake, uh, a garage, parking space, or storage unit. Now, the contract before also said if there's going to be a manufactured home, the North Carolina Association of Realtors and the North Carolina Bar Association's Real Property section strongly encouraged the use of the additional provisions addendum. And same thing still here, but not just specific to manufactured homes. So if there's that septic lot, uh, boat slip, et cetera, encouraging the use of the additional provisions addendum to further clarify the rights and obligations of the parties. Now, the next thing that you're gonna see is in section 1D and this is by the initial earnest money deposit section. And this is not new language. It's just moved from the end of the sentence to a different portion of the sentence just to clarify when these items must be paid. So initial earnest money deposit made payable and delivered to the escrow agent within five days of the effective date of this contract. It said the same thing before, just in a different part of the sentence. It uh, used to say that um, after all of the different options like cash, personal check, uh, wire transfer, electronic transfer within five days. If I had to guess, they moved the language because um, someone probably argued that only the electronic transfer had to be made within five days of the effective date and it was unclear when the other methods. So um, now it's even more clear than it was before that within five days of the effective date, the initial earnest money deposit must be made payable to and delivered to the escrow agent. All right, next let's talk about, this is on page two of the contract. This is going to be still in part 1D. And this is talking about what happens if the buyer doesn't deliver the due diligence or the earnest money. And before it said that if the, the buyer didn't deliver those funds as they were supposed to, the seller would be entitled to recover reasonable attorney's fees and court costs. And instead now that part is, has been lined through, that will be replaced with the language, seek any remedies allowed for dishonored funds. 
So this is just explaining that the seller has the right to seek any remedies that are, that are available to them, not just the contract remedies. So if there are more remedies, and there are statutorily for dishonored funds, the seller can seek those, uh, not just attorney's fees and court costs. Now, also there is a note in here, and this has come up quite a bit. Um, I've given a couple seminars recently to groups, and it's, this has come up each time, as to if the buyer is going to pay any of these fees to the seller, like due diligence fee or um, additional due diligence, whatever it may be, by electronic or wire transfer, the seller, in order to actually get the payment, has to reasonably comply or cooperate in getting the buyer the information so that they can make the transfer. So, all right, the seller says, all right, you can transfer me the money by wire, I will take the due diligence fee by wire, but then when it comes time to give the wire instructions, they don't want to give them. So uh, you can't prevent the buyer from wiring you the money because you don't want to give the wire instructions. If you agree to take a wire transfer, you have to provide the wire instructions so that the buyer can in fact transfer you the money. Now, this also clarifies that if there are additional costs to completing that type of transfer, for example, wire transfer, there may be wire fees, the buyer shall be responsible for any additional costs associated with that. Another big change here, um, it seems like a small change, but the effect uh, is big, or it's more clarifying than you might expect. And it's in 1E in the earnest money deposit. And it's clarifying that the earnest money deposit will either be credited to the buyer at closing, or dispersed as required by the contract. What it said before is, okay, it's gonna be, uh, the earnest money will be credited to the buyer at closing, or if the contract is terminated prior to due diligence, or if the seller breaches the contract, the earnest money will be returned to the buyer. The reason why that language was removed is because earnest money, if there is a dispute over who is entitled to the earnest money, for example, buyer says seller breached the contract, I am under the terms of the contract, it says, if the seller breaches, then I get my earnest money back, give me the money. And the seller says, no, I did not breach, do not give them the earnest money. Then the escrow agent is required to hold the money um, in the escrow account, cannot disperse without the agreement of the parties. The parties cannot come to an agreement, then there is a procedure in which the escrow agent deposits the money with the clerk of court and the parties can institute a special proceeding to recover the funds. So that's big in that this is making sure the language doesn't conflict so that the contract doesn't say in one paragraph, return to buyer, and in another paragraph, if the parties disagree, you cannot give anyone the money uh, because the escrow agent is bound by the law, which is, you know, if there's a dispute, then you gotta pay it to the clerk and so on and so forth. So this paragraph clarifies that. Now, under 1G, this is the definition of the effective date, which is the last date uh, of the parties to sign the final contract. So not necessarily like the initial offer. If there's a counter offer, then you got a counter sign, so on and so forth. Uh, but there's a new sentence here and it says, the parties further acknowledge that the effectiveness of this contract is not contingent on buyer's payment of any earnest money deposit or due diligence fee. See paragraph 1D for seller's remedy for any untimely delivered or dishonored funds. We already talked about paragraph 1D, so that gives the seller the ability to seek any remedies available to them. But it's really important here to know that the contract is binding as of the effective date, not upon the delivery of the funds. 
So, um, of course, if the buyer doesn't carry out their portion of the contract, the seller would say breach um, and then have other abilities to terminate under the contract. But the contract itself does not fail because the money isn't delivered. And that is something that um, I think maybe was not as clear in prior versions that is very clear now based on the new language. All right, moving on to section 2B. This is a hot topic, um, exercise equipment. My husband, who is behind the camera right now, has uh, what I would say is an extensive at-home gym with lots of equipment. Uh, some of it is, uh, well, actually, maybe not anymore, but in the past, we have had pull-up bars that are actually fixtures in the house, so like screwed into the wall. Those things aren't coming down. They're not going anywhere. And then other exercise equipment. So some people get, um, they assume that the exercise equipment is not actually a fixture, even if by the definition of fixture, it is in fact attached to the property. Um, it's not like a picture that you take off the wall. It's actually screwed in there. So there has been a bullet point added here that says exercise equipment or devices that are attached. So this is not your exercise bike that you move around. This is, this is not your Peloton. This is not your row, your row machine. Um, this is you know, pull-up bars or some other sort of equipment that is actually attached to the wall. And this was put in here specifically, the commentary from the North Carolina Association of Realtors is that listing these items specifically will help agents have earlier discussions with their clients and make clear that any attached equipment will be transferred to the buyer at closing. And if for some reason, you know, the seller does not want that item to transfer, that needs to be made abundantly clear in the contract. Now as to the items that are excluded, for example, you got the pull-up bar you wanna take down. There is in this uh, now 2E, explains that the seller must repair any damage from removal of items like that in a good and workmanlike manner. And then seller will notify the buyer when those repairs are complete and give the documentation of the repairs if there is any. And if the buyer wants those repairs uh, completed in any specific way, then the contract encourages them to use the additional provisions addendum so that that can be spelled out very clearly between the parties. Other things here, buyer's due diligence process. In paragraph four, there has been language added to encourage buyer to undertake uh, investigation with governmental compliance. And I'm gonna skip ahead a little bit to give some examples of that governmental compliance and what you're being encouraged to look at. And that's gonna be in section eight H. So that's a new paragraph here, governmental compliance, and it's a condition of the contract that the property is conveyed free of any material violations of ordinances, laws, permits, et cetera. Now, this hot topic in Lake Norman, impervious surface, that's one. So that would be governmental compliance. So the buyer's encouraged to investigate whether there is um, not too much impervious coverage. Impervious meaning water cannot get through it. Some areas around the lake are even more stringent than others. Mecklenburg County tends to be more stringent than Iredell County, but um, you know, making sure there's not too much impervious cover, making sure there's no zoning violations, etc. So the seller has to um, has to convey the property free of any material violation unless it has been disclosed prior to the effective date. Um, for example, I lived in a house that was built in the late 90s and it was built um, violating the setbacks. 
that was something that we knew going into it. When we sold, we disclosed that. That was made very clear you know, in, in the listing. It was made part of the contract that it was understood. So that's an example of governmental compliance you know, disclose up front, and then say the seller for some reason doesn't know, didn't obtain a survey, whatever it may be when they bought. Um, if the violation is discovered after the effective date and prior to closing, the seller may cure the violation. And then unless otherwise agreed, if the seller doesn't cure prior to closing, there's two options. Buyer can accept the violation and proceed to closing um, or terminate and get earnest money and due diligence back. So that is, that's what we're talking about here with governmental compliance. Next in section 7E, this is just clarifying to every party, so buyer, seller, closing attorney, if the property is subject to any leases, there's a checkbox for is and is not. Um, this is common in commercial contracts, but not in residential. So the checkbox has been added here. And if the property is subject to the lease to a lease, then the contract has added the phrase buyer and seller should include either the rental slash income slash investment property provision in the additional provisions addendum or the vacation rental addendum with this offer. So encouraging the parties to get the information out up front. This one is a big one, and this is in section 8G, and this is good title, legal access. And this is the paragraph that talks about the seller's obligation to deliver good title to the property, so both marketable and insurable. There's been a very specific change here that makes a very big difference. Whereas before, it said seller shall convey fee simple, marketable, and insurable title that was free of, uh, without exception for mechanics liens and free of any other liens, encumbrances, or defects. Now it says without exception for mechanics liens, Liz pendants, so clarifying that, monetary liens and judgments, and free of other encumbrances or defects, this is the big part, that would materially affect the value of the property. Now listen to the commentary of why this was added. So language has been clarified to state that the seller only needs to convey the property free of any material encumbrances. The existing language has no such qualifier. This is the prime example of where, where I see this. So this sometimes results in a buyer trying to use an immaterial encumbrance, such as a six inch fence encroachment on a small corner of the property to back out of the contract after due diligence, even though the seller can deliver marketable and insurable title. A six inch fence encroachment is almost never material. I, you never say never because there might be instances where it is, but we do often see parties try to back out of the contract because there is an encroachment. It's not going to affect the value of the property, but the encroachment does in fact exist. And that is a title defect. Defect doesn't mean, you know, the property is worthless, but it is a cloud on title. So the language adding a material defect or material encumbrance is going to be huge. It's going to help a lot in resolving disputes over minor fence encroachments, but I think it may also create a few more disputes as to uh, the parties disagreeing over what in fact is material. And then next, section 8i. This used to be section H, but as we talked about earlier, there is a new section H. Deed, taxes, and fees. This was the part of the contract where you can say the deed is to be made to and list someone that either is the buyer listed on the contract or someone other than buyer. 
And this is where it gets tricky. Um, if this was filled out incorrectly or needs to be changed, then the lender or even in some cases the attorney's office may need the contract changed in order to make the deed out to whomever the buyer wants the deed made to. So to prevent unnecessary uh, back and forth to try to get the contract amended, rather than saying the, the deed is to be made to and just have all the blank lines, it now says the deed is to be made to buyer, a corporation, LLC, or other business entity of which buyer is the sole owner or shareholder, a trust for which buyer is the beneficiary, any relative of buyer, and or other, which is where you would insert a name. So you don't have to insert a name if you're intending to, the, to convey the deed to an LLC that you own or have formed for the purpose of buying the property. Um, if you are going to want the property deeded to a trust that you're the beneficiary of, if you want to deed the property to a relative of yours. Um, the only reason you would have to put in a name is if you are trying to deed the property or you want the deed to be made out to uh, someone other than those new one, two, three, and four. So that helps a lot in eliminating the need for back and forth, um, last minute changes to the contract, just to make sure that everyone's complying with its terms. All right, a few left. Now paragraph 19, this one's interesting. And I think this is to prevent maybe upset parties. <laughs> um, and the commentary says usually the buyer recording this contract to create a cloud on title. So then it says here, this agreement or any memorandum thereof shall not be recorded without the express written consent of buyer or seller. So if um, the parties have moved on or, you know, the transaction has fallen apart and, and a buyer is upset and says, I want to make it difficult for this, the seller to try to sell it to anyone else. And they try to record this contract. You can't do that. Um, you can't do that anymore without express consent of buyer and seller, typically from um, preparing a memorandum of contract signed by both parties. Now, one more time, right before the signature lines, the contract repeats that this offer becomes binding on the effective date and that the payment, the failure to timely pay, is not alone the thing that makes the contract not binding. So the contract becomes binding, then the buyer has to submit all the money. If the buyer doesn't submit the money um, to where it needs to go within the required time, then there are other remedies within the contract for that issue. Um, so surprisingly, even though this is a long one and has a lot of information, this is not even as much, <laughs> not even as many changes as last year. So less changes than last year, but still some important ones. Um, if you are a North Carolina real estate agent, make sure beginning next month, you start using the new version of the contract, 7-2023, uh, to make sure that it has all of these new provisions in there. So hopefully this explains some of the new things and the reason why. As always, we love to put out videos just like this one to help you understand more about North Carolina real estate law. I'm Tiffany Weber. I'll catch you in the next video.